Hello and welcome to Pulp from Beyond the Veil. My name is Cody Sullivan and thank you for being with us. It's hard to believe we've made it this far, with this being our eighth official episode, and ninth if you count the OWL update earlier this fall. It now seems prudent to mention that we are on the back nine of this season of Pulp, which will feature the tenth episode as the season finale. So what will the off-season look like? Long summer nights in the city? Moonlit sandy footprints on Dominican beaches? The answer is hardly. Pulp will remain in stasis for a few months while we work on expanding the brand and creating next season's content. Our imaginative minds have been soaring with lofty ideas for bonus content, live shows, and scheduled releases, all in the name of making this the best possible program it can be. We'll be in touch during the off-season through the blog section of our website, pulpfrombeyond.com, and we hope you won't forget us during our brief slumber. But for now, sit back, relax, and listen to the tales we've lovingly lovecrafted for you. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, this is Pulp. Now let's begin. We begin this week in the rural woods of an unknown state. It's farm country here, and the fields of amber grain undulate with every breeze. Night has fallen, and darkness has reclaimed the forest, all but a solitary patch of land where a small fire has been centralized. A dark column of smoke rises and disappears amidst the backdrop of the stars as three figures sit observing dancing flames. Wherever there have been fires, there have been ghost stories, tales of monster sightings, and chatter of wicked killers. That's where we find ourselves this week, Amidst a telling of an interesting family legend, birthed of mischief and shrouded in disbelief, this story is called Happy Jack. When I was a kid, and my brother and I would act up, our grandfather would tell us these stories about Happy Jack to try and scare us. See, Happy Jack is a story that his father used to tell him, and his father before him. My grandfather's always been a jocular sort, and even into his late 80s he would still play these, these little tricks and pranks on our family. Whenever my brother and I were up to no good, he'd place his arms around us, and he would draw us in close, and he would whisper... Happy Jack loves a fool. You'll see that soon enough. So what is a Happy Jack? Some kind of monster? Wait, let me guess. 
a creepy clown that lives in these woods. I actually want to hear this. Shut up. Keep going, Scott. The way that my grandfather tells it, it's probably a lot scarier than mine, but I'll try to remember. Okay. So Happy Jack was once a scarecrow that my great-grandfather used to have in his cornfield. Just a stuffed mannequin of hay and simple barn clothes. One day, when my grandfather was messing around, he carved a smiling jack-o'-lantern and he placed it on the scarecrow's head. So he was hoping he'd give his dad a fright in the morning. Now, it worked, but not for the reason that my grandfather thought. When his dad left the house in the morning to tend the fields, he found that the scarecrow had moved off its post and it was standing, balanced by itself, in front of the house. Even stranger was the words that had been burned into the grass at the scarecrow's feet. Happy Jack. Burned like what? Like in the grass? Yeah, the way my grandfather tells it, it was like someone had taken a torch and had carefully burned the letters into the green grass. Mm, front lawns are overrated anyway. Naturally, my great-grandpa pulled my grandpa to the side and confronted him about this prank, but my grandpa could only confess to putting the jack-o'-lantern over his head. He knew nothing about moving him, let alone burning the letters into the ground. So his father took the pumpkin off his head and returned him to the field. Now this is where it gets weird. Good, because I was just wondering when... for Christ's sake, let him finish the story. All right. Every morning when my great-grandpa would get up and head out into the field, he'd find Happy Jack somewhere he shouldn't be. Sitting on the porch, perched on a tractor. Most of these were somewhat humorous, but a bit puzzling. Mostly because each morning he'd find Happy Jack with that same pumpkin and that same smile on his head. Then things around the farm started to go missing. A shovel would disappear entirely. The post that Happy Jack would be propped on vanished. All the while, the pumpkin on his head began to rot. But still, he always had that smile. The last straw was when my great-grandmother woke up the whole house with screams one morning. She had come down the stairs and found Happy Jack seated at the kitchen table. Coffee made and a plate full of moldy bread and foul-smelling eggs in front of him. Ew. (laughs) Yeah. After that, my great-grandpa decided he needed to do away with Happy Jack once and for all. He built a large bonfire, and he carried the strange scarecrow over to it, and he tossed it in. Now, my grandpa maintained till the day that he died that what happened that night was gospel truth. The instant that Happy Jack landed in the fire, there was a low rumbling of laughter. To my great-grandpa's horror... The scarecrow stood up on the pyre, arms and legs kicking wildly as he leapt out of the flames and began running a flame into the woods at an unnatural speed. The night air was pierced with laughter and the words echoing through the forest. They couldn't hurt Jack, though they tried, tried, tried. I remember now. That's a song by The Who. Happy Jack, those are the lyrics. You're pulling our legs. (laughs) And you thought he was serious? Get real. You guys don't have to believe me. But if you listen carefully tonight, you may just hear old Happy Jack's song echoing through the forest. Just take care not to mess around too much tonight. Happy Jack loves a fool. You'll see soon enough. Don't say I didn't warn you. Uh, well, if you're quite finished... I mean, I think I packed some beers and s'more stuff in my bag. Hand it over. Oh, thanks. Alright, you guys get started without me. I gotta take a piss. Don't get killed while you're out there. Yeah, watch out for Happy Jack, you idiot. Do you think he was bullshitting us or what? (laughs) Seriously? A story about a living scarecrow his grandfather made come to life with nothing but a pumpkin? I hear Happy Jack is running for election. Yeah, Happy Jack in Santa 2020. A setup as old as time. 
three young people alone in the forest, swapping ghost stories over a crackling fire. What begins as an innocent night in the woods quickly turns into something more sinister as the night goes on. In this case, whether or not Happy Jack actually exists is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is that belief has the certain ability to make all manner of things come to life. Look, he left his phone! Hey, I bet he's got nudes on here. Yeah, I'll pass on that, thanks. I've seen enough naked Scott already. Ouch. (sighs) I will say that it's a little funny that in all the time I've known Scott, he's never mentioned his family's farm or his grandfather either. Yeah, so what? You guys were roommates in college, not best friends. Still, we were pretty close. I mean, we stayed in touch, and he invited me out here. Thank God, because I needed a little country air. (laughs) Yeah, it's alright, I guess. I mean, except for the bugs, and it's getting cold, and there might be bears. But yeah, it's not so bad. To be honest, I'm a little surprised to see you here. Yeah, how is that? Well, you two have history is all. Eric, we dated for like six weeks our freshman year, and we've been in touch ever since. Don't act like I'm his estranged ex-wife, please. I just didn't realize you guys hung out all still. We haven't in a while, but he invited me out here like a month ago. And at first, I was busy and my plans fell through. So I called him back to see if you guys are still going to come all the way out here. And he told me yes. He was super excited. It's been a couple of months since I've seen him. Well, glad you could make it. Cheers. Cheers. The two sat and reminisced by the fire beneath the light of the moon and stars. They talked about memories from their college days, about the awkward date they'd had together, and about whether or not Scott knew about it. Neither one of them mentioned the sex they'd had at the end of Scott and Maggie's relationship. Before they knew it, they'd finished four beers and two s'mores. Hey, Eric. Where's Scott? He's been gone a long time. Shit. Right. Hey, Scott? Are you out there? If you're trying to scare us, it's not gonna work. I don't know. You think we should go look for him? It's really dark, and I mean, I guess he could have gotten lost. Nah, I don't think so. This is his family's property. I'm sure he knows it well. Besides, I feel like he'd be shouting if he was lost. He's... Probably just being a dick. Yeah, he'll probably pop out of the bushes any second now with a pumpkin on his head singing that stupid Who song. You think? Yeah, I used to play pranks on me like that all the time when we lived together. Let's have one more beer. And if he isn't back by then, we'll go looking for him. I'm really enjoying catching up with you. Really. Okay. One more beer. Try as he might to keep the conversation going, Eric had a hard time keeping Maggie's attention as her eyes scanned the woods for any sign of Scott. It was getting late. Well, I'm done. And we have to look for Scott. It's getting late. Even if he was playing a prank on us, I doubt he'd hide in the woods for, like, almost two hours just to get a rise out of us. Yeah, you're right. Okay, let's go. Scott, come on, knock it off, man. It's not funny. Scott! 
The pair traveled deep into the dark woods, using the flashlights on their phones to guide them. After a few minutes, they could no longer see the glow of the fire behind them. They were surrounded on all sides by tall pines, and as they went deeper, they found the brush to be dense and difficult to traverse. God damn it. He couldn't have wandered off this far. Shh. Do you hear that? Scott! Where are you? Oh my god. Do you think that's him? He sounded close by. Come on, let's go. It looks like there's a clearing up ahead. The pair entered the clearing, and with the light of the moon illuminating the ground, they were able to see three large rectangular holes of freshly dug earth, with a shovel planted in a large dirt pile. They looked to be four or five feet deep, with the third being the most shallow. Curiously enough, situated around the third grave were six wheelbarrows full of dirt and large rocks. They appeared to have long ropes that were connected to their fronts and drifted into the shallow grave. What the hell is this? Are these supposed to be graves? What the fuck is going on here? Eric, where's Scott? Do you think that he would do this as some sort of sick, fucked up prank? I, 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 I don't know, but we have to get the hell out of here. Suddenly, there was the sound of something running through the brush. That's when they heard the singing. Scott! This isn't funny! Stop it right now! Okay, Maggie, I'm almost out of battery on my phone. I'm gonna turn it off and save it. We need to head back now! Yeah, good idea. At that moment, with the light of the moon... Eric noticed that there were things on the ground. He bent down and grabbed one of them. It was a rope tied into a loop, and it trailed off into the brush. He quickly looked around and noticed that all around the clearing were these looped ropes. There must have been two dozen. Maggie, watch where you're standing! He turned to look at Maggie, but it was too late. Her right foot was planted in the center of a large loop, and suddenly the rope came alive. Maggie! Eric tried to follow the direction of her screams, brambles tearing at his face. But suddenly there was a sickening crunch, and the screaming stopped. Maggie, where are you? Eric turned his light back on and followed the path of broken branches and felled saplings. It was slow progress through the dense brush, and after ten minutes of searching... He came across something that stopped him in his tracks. No, 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 please, no. There on the ground, in a deep crimson pool of blood and gore, there was a massive rock. And on the rock and ground, amidst the broken shards of white bone, was splattered a pink and gray pulp that Eric knew at once to be brains. (laughs) Shit, 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 shit. He looked at his phone and saw that there was no service. He tried to call 911 anyway, but the phone never rang. In a panic, Eric knew that he had to go back the way they'd came, 
through the brambles, past the clearing, past their campfire, back to his car, and back to town where they could get help. He ran as fast as he could as the branches became claws that tore his face and jacket. He felt a warm drip of blood slide down his forehead and into his eyes. When he made it to the clearing, he collapsed in an exhausted heap. The moon was now fully overhead, and the clearing was illuminated even brighter than before. He stared at the graves for a moment, and something compelled him to take a closer look. He slowly inched closer to the three holes in the ground. He didn't want to take a look. He already knew what he was going to see. Oh no! Jesus Christ! Maggie! Inside the first grave was the body of Maggie. Her limbs were bloodied and scratched from being dragged. Her shirt and pants were torn and ragged, but it was her head that horrified him and left him without breath. Sitting there upon her head was a large, immaculately carved jack-o'-lantern with a wide smile. Blood had poured out of every possible hole. The eyes, the nose, the mouth, all had small streams of blood trickling out. She was, certainly, dead. I'm so sorry, Maggie. Eric heard the noise come from the second grave. He left the morbid scene of the first grave and looked into the second. Inside, beaten and bruised, was Scott. Beside his body was another large jack-o'-lantern. Eric reached into the grave and grabbed Scott by the underarm and hoisted him out of the hole. Scott! Scott, wake up! Please! What the hell is going on here? He's... He's here. He found us. I was planning on scaring you guys when I heard someone singing. And I went to see who it was, and it was it was him. He got me. He, he saw... He saw me. <laughs> Shh. You're okay. You're okay. All right. Um... I'm gonna get us out of here. You sit right here. I need to get Maggie's phone. My phone's almost out of battery and we won't make it back in the dark. Sit tight, okay? Eric went back to the first grave and lowered himself into it. He gently patted the ruined body of his friend until he felt the familiar shape of her phone. He pulled it out of her pocket and checked it. A sudden wave of panic washed over him as he saw that it was locked. He needed a fingerprint. He bent down and gently took her cool, dead hand in his and pressed her finger to the sensor. The phone sprung to life, and he felt intense relief when he turned the flashlight on. Seventy percent power should be enough. When he crawled out of the grave, he immediately noticed two things. There was no sign of Scott and sitting there in front of the third grave where it wasn't before was another large jack-o'-lantern. He scanned the edge of the clearing with the flashlight as he approached the third grave. He shined the light down and saw that it was empty. Slack-jawed and exhausted, he looked at the jack-o'-lantern with its unnatural, jagged smile. 
He stood there for only a few moments when he heard someone behind him. He simply stared vapidly at the pumpkin at his feet. Scott. Please don't tell me it was you. But they couldn't stop Jack or the water's lapping, and they couldn't prevent Jack from feeling happy. Scott brought down the shovel on Eric's head with such force that Eric was dead before he hit the ground. Blood poured from his ears, nose, and his deeply caved-in skull. Scott could hardly see with the jack-o'-lantern on his head, but he knew he'd finished him off. Scott placed the third pumpkin over Eric's mutilated skull and gently stroked its orange face, leaving long trails of blood on its surface. He buried them quickly and patted down the earth. Finally, he walked over to the third and most shallow grave. He lowered himself into the pit and gathered up the ropes connected to the wheelbarrows. Happy Jack loves a fool. You'll see. You'll see. With the last of his wicked strength, Scott pulled the rope and immediately was crushed beneath the weight of rock and sand and stone. The night was silent again. Somewhere in the distance, an owl let out a somber hoot. That remains to be the eulogy of these three friends... Somewhere in the distance, an owl let out a somber hoot. That remains to be the eulogy of these three friends. The search parties never even came close to their graves. It's easy to get lost in woods like these, and while they'll never be found, the story of Happy Jack lives on. After all, Scott's brother Ben will be in these woods soon, with two friends to help look for these unfortunate missing souls. And when you're around a campfire... In woods like these, you can't help but tell a scary story, can you? Pulp from Beyond the Veil will be right back after this short message from our program's first sponsor. The cold morning sun creeps across the blood-soaked streets of middle America, yet sounds of debauchery and drunken fornication thunder on, heedless of the dawn. Leaders of great nations tremble before the specter of domination as unwashed hordes sweep across their borders and lay waste to their modern way of life. Outsiders glut themselves on the hard-earned wealth of entrepreneurs and job creators. All this and more can be yours, America. Many candidates promise a struggle to survive in a nation rent asunder by violence and cultural strife. Only one emerges. Clutching in her blood-stained hands a proven record of grieving and raising. Cower before the might of Bertha Berserk. But you need not merely grovel as I issue proclamations. Let the lamentations of the conquered be heard. My name is Gary Sounder, and I'm the mayor of Poskegon, New York. Well, I used to be anyway. 
Then one day Bertha and her horde came to town and that all changed. Now I skin Bertha's game and tend her fire. Please, God, help me. I'm Karen Gonsler, the former speaker for the New York State House of Representatives. When Bertha stormed the floor of our legislature, I yielded almost immediately at the sight of her burning eyes and gore-stained axe. She spat on me and called me a craven. Now I'm being walked down this tunnel and... and... I hope they're letting me go. So when you make your choice this year, ask yourself this. When Bertha Berserk comes to your door at three in the morning, to whom will you pledge your undying loyalty? My name is Bertha Berserk, and I approve this message. Paid for by the spoils of 1,000 conquests. People are, in general, creatures of habit. We tend to be drawn to a routine for a number of reasons. Consistency breeds success, or relief, or perhaps simply having a ritual brings one a certain degree of happiness. That is unless, of course, the ritual in question is a bit less wholesome than, say, making your bed every morning. Submitted for your approval, a story about a seemingly inconsequential man and his familiar, who happens to notice some odd behavior on Gerson Street once a month. This story's called Order of the Sorcerer. Small pepperoni, olives, extra cheese with garlic bread. Always the same for 62 West Carson Drive, but today it wasn't the same. Do you feel it? Do you smell the foul corruption? The raspy voice came unexpectedly from my shoulder. No. Beware, Murph Murdoch, for in that house waits death. Middle-aged man with the thick glasses and a curly gray streaked mop of hair peeked furtively through a curtain and quickly disappeared again. It had been the same since I began driving for Paul's Family Pizza nine months ago. The order, the peeking, the sliding through the door to pay on the porch, the man always called me Jay despite the patch with my name on it. Does this not make you suspicious, Murph Murdoch, sensitive as you are to the patterns of ritual? <sighs> no, bile drinker, it doesn't seem suspicious. I mean, there's a woman in East Camford who orders a small garlic bread the second any snowstorm hits six inches. That is not my name, Murph Murdoch. I have done my duty. A pop, sulfur, pizza delivery. (laughs) 
That night, the coven met at Ruben's place. Spill ran the session. Ruben always hosts, and I brought pizza and drinks because Chad's a goddamn mooch. Before we started the game, we went through the motions. Spill chanted half-heartedly to Ruben on his left. What magic have you wrought since we last met? I did a charm on this girl at the library. She gave me her number. What magic have you wrought since we last met? The question was for Chad. I got a free game of pinball at Charlie's after I scratched a pentagram on the coin slot. What magic have you wrought since we last met? For me, stumped because I hadn't really been doing much magic that week. I said the incantation of empowerment every morning and got way more tips than normal on Tuesday. What magic had Come on, that doesn't count. You didn't get tips because you said the incantation. You do that every day. I said the words and I got the tips, okay? Did I interrupt you when you said your dumb crap about pinball? I made like 30 extra bucks. How many games of pinball is that? The right went on uninterrupted. Spill told us about his partner letting his familiar feed on their blood before going on stage and playing a killer set. We chanted the parting spell and got out our dice. I told the group what Bile Drinker said about the house and the guy who ordered the same pizza every time. Reuben piped up through a mouthful of Supreme. I, I don't buy it. I mean, I order the same thing every time. Yeah, man, your familiar's just being a dick. Bog Myrtles is spooky shit like that all the time. I leveled up, and Chad's guy got killed by a poison gas trap. Spill told us about how he was going to work a spell into a rift to get a paid show. Afterward, we all went out on the porch while Chad and Spill had a smoke. Well, let us know if Bile Drinker was right. I won't know for a while. The guy only calls once a month. On the same day? I don't think so. Yeah, like I said, a dick. Next month, I went back to West Carson to drop off the small pepperoni, olives, extra cheese, and garlic bread. I pull up behind a rusted-out purple Ford Ranger and Bile Drinker hissed in my ear again. Surely you feel it now. Smell it even. I can't tell if anything's up because you're giving me the creeps. As always, the guy poked his thick glasses through a crack in the curtain. Something was different, though. The man was wearing a hat like you'd picture a geezer wearing on a fishing trip. He stepped out onto the porch like always, but when he did, a cold November breeze tore through the neighborhood and this huge rush of leaves came over the porch. The wind caught the fishing hat and knocked it off the guy's head. He left it in the opposite end of the porch where it landed, but panic sank into his eyes. <laughs> Thanks, Jay. The door slammed in my face, but not before I caught a glimpse of the back of the man's head while he tried to slip away. Clearly, he'd been in some sort of accident, because the top of his skull was caved in, exposing blood, bone, and even some pinkish-gray beneath. He couldn't have still been standing, yet there he was. In the car, Bile Drinker came back. Well, Murph Murdoch... I think you were. Yes! I might have assumed... I'm listening, Murph Murdoch. Something's bonkers in there, all right? You were right. And what should you do when something is, as you say, bonkers? <sighs> With a groan, I got out of the car. The steps creaked as I made my way back onto the porch. The stillness hung in the air, and for a second, I thought I could actually smell something wrong. I banged on the door. No answer. I banged again. Nothing. So I walked around the house and peeked in the windows, but all of them had the thick, moldy shades drawn tight. There was a basement window and a cement frame, so I put my head into the hole and looked through. Out of the cobwebs and dust came a blue light. I saw gray-streaked hair and someone tied to the table. There was a pleading cry, a gurgling scream, then silence. The locked front door was solid wood, but there was a curtain window next to it. I smashed the glass, banging on it with the handle of my pocket knife. It wasn't quiet. A 
bone shaking cold gripped my hand as I reached through to search for a bowl and I recoiled. Murph Murdoch, what can be done about such cold and stagnation? Jesus, bow drinker, don't lecture me. I spat and then cut my hand with a knife. From pit to hand, send now the cleansing fire. Inside the house, the kitchen was entirely bare. Empty cabinets hung open like ransacked crypts. Doors led to a dining room and a parlor, each of which was covered in a thick layer of dust. The interior rooms were even colder, almost overwhelming despite my conjured flame. In the back of the dining room, a small door was ajar. Blue light flickered from it. I opened it just enough to step through and saw the man bent over the body on the slab. Watching his channels in the stone led blood from cuts on the throat, wrists, and legs into an ornate bronze bowl. As I descended, I could hear the man muttering under his breath. Go away. Go away. Why won't you just fucking leave? Are you talking to me? Focus. Deal with it after. I stepped off the stairs and into the basement, making the sign of the horns at the man caved in skull and squeezing another drop from my hand into the open jaws of Bile Drinker, who is now clinging to my Paul's Pizza jacket. No, I think we'll do this now. Stand, sorcerer, and look me in the eyes. Having chanted earnestly and sealed the spell with sacrifice, the man had no choice. He turned, quivering, and taking off his thick glasses. The eyes beneath were hard and lifeless, gray as weathered granite. You're all wrong! You've played your part already! You've ruined me with your interloping! Even as he said this, a festering blackness spread through the wound on his head and overtook his body. Granite eyes shrank and turned to dust as paper skin tightened on ancient bones. The sorcerer collapsed in a heap of inconspicuous middle-class clothing. Well, Murph Murdoch, aren't you glad you took my advice? I looked around at the ruins of the ritual that had kept Sorcerer around for, well, who knows how long. The accursed wreck of his frame, the body on the slab, and me, with a cut hand and no tip to show for it. (sighs) No, not really. Beyond the Veil. We'll be right back after this message from our second sponsor of the program. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. What do all of these great historical leaders have in common? They will all serve me in my undying cabinet of corpses. I... Gonthar the Godless have come to resurrect American greatness. I cannot tell a lie. I was able to resist the might of the British army, but not Gonthar's call. When I was beckoned forth from the festering pits, Gonthar offered to make me Secretary of Defense, or, alternatively, to perpetually feast upon my tortured and fragmented soul. When I heard it put that way, I shouted, I'm with Gonthar! I spent my last years pleading for civility and unity, with only an assassin's bullet to show for it. When Gonthar's emaciated hand reached through the veil 
to pull me from the roiling cauldron of hate in which I had been suffering for the last hundred and fifty years or so, I felt the soothing balm of vengeance for the first time. Now this charnel house shall once again stand united in the enduring union of Gonthar's deathless corpseocracy. So when you go to the polls, ask yourself, is there a candidate on the ballot that you've just been dying for? Trust me, there will be. Paid for by Gonthar for President, resurrecting American greatness. And so, once again, we've reached the end of our time together. We hope you've enjoyed our latest offerings and are still hungry for more. Let us know what you think by following us on Facebook, Twitter at Pulp From Beyond, or drop us a line directly via email at pulpfrombeyond at gmail.com. If you would like to make a contribution, either lending us your voice or submitting a written entry, please don't be shy. We so love hearing from you, our constant listeners. Happy Jack was written by C.A. Sullivan and performed by Zachary Richardson, Cody Sullivan, Jamie Danner, and Davis McGraw. Order of the Sorcerer was written by Gustav Grift and performed by Zach Dow, Chris Goulet, Dominic Varnke, Zachary Husband, and Cody Sullivan. Both of our election ads today were also written by Gustav Grift, and special thanks to our vocal contributors, Zachary Husband, Dominic Varnke, Cody Sullivan, and Jamie Danner. Sound design, music, and editing was done by Cody Sullivan and mastered by Chris Goulet. Thanks to Zachary Husband for co-producing the program. If you feel so inclined to help this show grow, we strongly suggest you visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash pulpfrombeyond. All donations go right back into this little labor of love, and we hope to continue providing you with scares and uneasy smiles for the months and years to come. As I said in the opening, there are many lofty ideas at work for this show, and every dollar helps us get closer to our goals. Finally, I'd like to thank you, the listeners, for tuning into our program. When the pilot launched, I believe we garnered about a dozen listens in the first month. Now, on our eighth episode, We are coming up strongly on a thousand listens. I feel proud beyond measure to have worked with such incredible and talented people, and the proof, I think, is in the pudding. The blood pudding, as it were. So from all of us here at Pulp, thank you. And until our paths meet once more, stay spooky. I'm Cody Sullivan. Signing off.